Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And on this episode of BTS Podcast, I have on Megan Murray. I'm super excited to share this episode with everybody. I feel like I say that at the top of every episode, but it's always true. So Megan and I worked together at Possible, which is an advertising agency, several years ago. She then left to join Wazelle, which is a women's running apparel company that's doing some really incredible work in community building and advocating for athletes. She was their director of marketing, and now she is the strategy director for the US at Analog Folk, which is an independent digital creative agency. She's been there for a little bit over a year and we caught up and talked about what she does as a strategist, how she got there, her approach, and just really dug into those details. We cover a ton in this episode and since this is about strategy, it's only fair that I share a strategic tip with you for anyone who's feeling a little bit just overwhelmed or uh, I don't know, uh, sometimes long episodes like this can seem like a lot to digest, is that most apps, ooh, I had a hiccup, sorry, and that most apps, and I use Breather now, but I had been using Apple Podcasts for a long time, have the uh, function that you can listen to podcasts at faster speeds. So I find myself listening to most podcasts at about 1.5 to 1.75 times the speed, but for podcasts that are like with a little bit even slower of talkers, like Econ Talk, which I love, Russ Roberts is rad and he has a lot of really great guests on. Uh, check out his episode with Amy Webb, it's amazing. Um, but I listened to that one specifically at two times the speed um, and it only that only feels weird, A, on comedy podcasts because comedians tend to talk faster and then also the intro outro music can get real weird sounding when you listen to it, um, especially if you've heard it before and you're familiar with it. I listen to Bullseye with Jesse Thorne a lot and every time I listen to it on one and a half times the speed and the music comes on, I'm like very thrown off by this remix. So anyways, just food for thought for this podcast or in general, whatever makes you happy. I just think it's important that you know. Um, so even at two times the rate, you'll hear Megan and I dive into a lot of things. Um, we talk about creative briefs, which if you're an agency that's relevant to you, if you're thinking about joining an agency, this is something that you should know about and just sort of like have some ideas in your head about the purpose of them. It's a hot topic across many organizations. We also discuss agency structure, her approach to deciding on where she's worked over the years, the value of getting to know your client's finance team, her journey with burnout, critical thinking, challenging assumptions, and the things that were sort of unique about her upbringing and her parents' approach that have taught her to value questioning herself and looking within for um, just finding solutions and really examining your own behaviors, which is something that I'm a big fan of. And I think if we all did, the world might be a little bit better of a place. So we get a little bit esoteric, but I promise you it's with a purpose. Uh, this is a two-part series of conversations I'm having with strategists. Strategy is an area of business that I've always found most fascinating, and it's also been traditionally very behind the scenes. So it's sort of a little bit of a meta journey given the theme and title of this podcast, which is BTS Podcast, and the BTS stands for Behind the Scenes. So the previous episode in the strategy series is with Genevieve Asensio. She's a VP at Golan, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you have not already. Uh, I believe she is on episode 16, and this will be episode 18. So please do enjoy. If you want to support this podcast, which I really hope you do, I independently produce this podcast, so any support is super welcome and goes directly to just helping me do this, whether that means like 
contributing uh, funds to pay for storage space or you know just different things that I need to pay for in producing this. It helps me rent breather rooms, which I'll give you a promo code for shortly. So um, please do subscribe, rate, review, share episodes that you like, share these episodes with uh, students that you know or people who are considering career shifts or may just be looking for ways to like shift their own thinking to improve their work, career, whatever. You can also sign up for my newsletter, which is called Ask a Millennial, and it's just an email that comes every now and then that dives into some of the topics that we discuss in this episode. Um, we talk about the internet, content, marketing, cultural news, deep dives into culture, and it just shares a lot of different information around things that might be relevant. You can look at the promo codes and my Venmo in the description of this episode to get the written format of how to support. Um, also, real quick, just so you know, any of the services I plug are services that I use religiously and that I'm a huge fan of and I've used for a while. The first of which is Instacart. I use this for grocery delivery. Uh, I have like this thing where I don't really like um, giving money to like giant monsters like Amazon. Like, of course I have an Amazon Prime account, but for my grocery delivery, I use Instacart and I have groceries delivered from places other than Whole Foods to support other businesses. I live in Seattle primarily, and so I have stuff delivered from PCC. Um, and I highly recommend Instacart. It's great. You can choose what you want. You can be specific about replacements, and it's a really great way to save time. And just like if you're somebody like me who takes the bus and Ubers, it ends up saving money also. So please do sign up for Instacart and you can use code LCOOK5142. I wish I had a sexier promo code, but Instacart has not granted me one. I wish that it was nice like my other ones. Um, well, I guess they're not all nice. Only the, only the breather room one is nice. Anyways, speaking of breather rooms, you can book a breather room, which is just uh, sort of like an Airbnb for meeting rooms. So it's great for if you're recording a podcast, if you have a meeting, a conference call you need to take, you don't want to sign up for a co-working space just to use it one or two times if you're traveling or in a city or whatever. It's also great for offsites. Check out their website, use code Linnae, L-Y-N-A-E, to save on your first booking. That also helps me save on my future bookings. And obviously, obviously all these promo codes help me save on like, you know, my groceries, a breather room, uh, a massage and hotels. So speaking of massage and hotels, for massages, I use Soothe, which is a service where they come to your house or your hotel or wherever you're at. It is lovely. I like the sport massage. I usually go to 60 minute one and I keep a notebook by me to take notes because sometimes I have good ideas. Like last night, I thought of a really funny skit that would be very good um, sort of for that show, I Think You Should Leave, which is a hysterical show. You should watch it. Um, it's definitely like a little bit of oddball comedy, but I think you'll like it. It's weird and good. Um, so please do sign up for Soothe. You can use code LZLRZ on that to save. It's great, it's lovely, totally worth it. Get a couple's massage, do your thing. Um, that is great. And then also Hotel Tonight. So I've used Hotel Tonight for years. I've used them in like various countries, various cities, um, and for like just a variety of different trip types. Um, you can use El Cook 61 to save. They have really beautiful hotels. They have in-app concierge at really great prices. And what's cool is that when you go through like their point system or whatever, you end up like saving more and more uh, the more that you book with them. So I'm a big fan. Please use that promo code. Um, and thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And I am here with Megan Murray. Hello. Hi. 
Hi. She is the strategy director at Analog Folk. And we met, oh God, probably like three or four years ago yeah. now. Uh, when we were both at Possible. In our younger days. In our, well, you know, every previous day is a younger day. We were, whenever someone says, I feel old, I'm like, yeah, because you're literally the oldest you've ever been. Every day, you're the oldest you've ever been. Yes. Um, So I would, I was going to like, because she just ran me through her job, but I think that she will do a much more beautiful job of explaining her own job herself. Um, So can you explain to me uh, what you do at Analog Folk? Yeah, so... um, Analog Folk is a uh, independent digital creative agency, meaning that we make some combination of digital advertising um, and digital product design for a whole bunch of different clients. So if you're familiar with the agency world, um, we tend to touch stuff that does not look like print ads uh, and TV commercials. Um, But we do a lot of online video, a lot of social content. Um, We're making a lot of websites and apps for kind of like Fortune 50 clients. Um, My job is this interesting little uh, corner of the advertising universe called strategy. Um, One of the things that's interesting about how uh, agencies are built is that Um, the premise is that when you bring together a whole bunch of different people uh, with different skill sets and kind of like lenses on the world that makes the creative work uh, more uh, effective and more interesting. And so strategy has this kind of unique task of um, studying the business and also getting really, really close to uh, the customer uh, and people and understanding kind of how, uh, where people are in culture right now and what they need and what they want and what they really can't stand, which is more and more part of the job, um, and helping the creative team design things that really like work for both parties. And so like a, a winning strategy is essentially um, a blueprint for uh, a brand to like live in a meaningful place in a customer's life. Um, and sometimes those are small little delightful moments. And sometimes uh, in the case of, you know, the Nikes uh, of the world, those are like bigger, more emotional places in people's hearts and minds. Um, so yeah, I uh, lead the strategy group for the U.S. Uh, we have an office in New York and Portland. Um, and uh, we are we are growing. Uh, we're a little growing shop. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And um, one thing that we talked about briefly before starting also is how unique it is to be at a global independent agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because if people aren't familiar with the agency model, and especially if you've never worked at, you know, Mm -hmm. a WPP agency or whatever, you don't really, like, can you just elaborate on why that's unique? Yeah, definitely. I grew up... um, my first job, actually, not even before I was out of college, while I was in college, was in a strategy position at a, a global uh, communications agency at Saatchi and Saatchi. And so I'd always kind of grown up in these firms where um, you work for an agency, that agency um, has layers of management and other offices in other parts of the world. Um, but that agency is a part of a network of agencies that are owned by these like kind of like massive, titanic, global communications holding companies, right? And they, one of the things that's really interesting about, um, like that. Like a Procter and Gamble of ad agencies. Yeah, totally. That's a great, um, it's a great analogy. Um, and so what ends up happening is, um, while you may kind of have a vibrant role in your local shop, there's just, there's a lot of layers of management. There's a lot of other people contending for the same pieces of business. Um, there's even some like political dynamics that play out at a global scale. And it ends up kind of being, it can be pretty limiting in terms of like what you're able to do. Um, 
one of my one of the most interesting things I think is how, uh, especially in strategy, um, we make these things called creative briefs, uh, and there's like uh, the creative brief template is always this like kind of like labored over artifact of an agency, and especially like a strategy department. And it goes, you know, if you're in a global, if you're in a global communications uh, holding company, that strategy like brief has to go all the way up sometimes to uh, the global level, and with every kind of layer of review or every layer. Um, uh, every time it's touched by somebody more senior than you, it changes a little bit and it might uh, become diluted or it might become a bit more conservative or it might, might become something that somebody else wants that didn't necessarily start with what you saw or believe that your team needs. And so, um, you know, we're, we don't have that. We have, uh, we're a global network of independent agencies. Um, each uh, region is kind of owned by a set of operating partners. Um, so uh, our executive creative director and our managing director of the U.S. own our U.S. offices. Um, so we get this kind of like, I get this benefit of being able to talk to other strategists around the world uh, and connect with them. Um, you know, every once in a while, uh, like I hop into our Slack channel and spend a day talking to the London strategy team to talk about like, you know, is uh, the UK seeing a loneliness epidemic like we are in the US and how like how is what's unfolding there different from what's unfolding here. But in, in doing all of that, it doesn't necessarily come with the pain points of um, being over supervised. <laughs> right. uh, and so the big benefit for me is I get to break a lot of stuff. Like there's, uh, we're in a phase right now, I think a lot of strategists um, are talking about stuff like this, where I'm even challenging the need for a creative brief. Like, you know, if, we, if we're approaching work the right way, if we're staffing the right way, if we're bringing the right people into the agency, like we can actually be a bit more um, brave and adventurous about like the way that we practice our craft and move away from maybe some of the more conservative or traditional processes that are coming mm -hmm. from these big agencies. So it's cool. Mainly in short, I get to break th things and I don't have a lot of people that are telling me I can't uh, do that or like in reality, layers of old white men telling me uh, the way I need to do my job. I like the idea of thinking of old white men as like sedimentary <laughs> yeah. layers, like, a bunch of, like, like the Grand Canyon. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, for some, for some pretty capable old white men, but, um, you know, it, it does feel nice to know that, like, uh, I can be a bit more experimental um, in the way that we approach work, uh, and there's not, um, you know, like hovering supervision waiting for me to screw up. Uh, it does, though. It does come at a cost. We are very scrappy. Mm -hmm. I like remember the days of working at Possible and having, you know, the the suite of research tools where, you know, regardless right. of what I need, whether it's, you know, uh, <laughs> whether it's comms data or behavioral data or digital data, or even like, I want to run a proprietary study with Forrester. There's just like, there's so much, uh, research, uh, and intelligence at your fingertips, right. That like the network pays for, you don't have to pay for it at a local level. Um, when you work for like an independent shop, like that stuff, uh, those are, are luxuries, right? They right. don't necessarily happen in your first <laughs> 10 years of being a startup. Um, but the good news is it pushes you back to some of the roots of the craft. Like we still do a lot of field research now. Um, I spent last month, um, it's been a weekend down at Rutgers, just like interviewing college students about like what it's like to be in college these days and like how it feels to be 20, 21, 22. And what, uh, what do people get right about them? And what do people get wrong about them? And I mm -hmm. think, you know, you walk away from those experiences with so much more, um, you know, everyone uses that word empathy, but it's also just like, uh, you get a better picture of what people's lives are really like. And when you think about designing things, you think, you don't think about designing them for like Gen Z, you think about designing them from like 
Sarah, the 21 year old at Rutgers who's studying to become a biologist. Right. And I think that stuff can be really powerful in, um, both unlocking new creative opportunities, but also just like shaping really, really good creative work. Definitely. And one thing that I find fascinating too, when people, I've worked on so many teams where it's like, well, here's the audience. It's millennials. <laughs> and to me, I'm like, but you know that that's, all, yeah. that's like a group of people from 25 mm-hmm. to like 38. Yeah. <laughs> so you're designing for, oh really? Yeah. Like, and that, that is, I mean, I even just think about uh, like when people say American culture, what that means. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm like, <laughs> my, my grandma, she's not from this country. And one of my favorite quotes of hers, cause I was complaining and I said something about this country and she stopped what she was doing and she looked at me and she goes, country, this is not a country. She goes, look at the name. Estados Unidos. De America. She goes, these are just states united. <laughs> this is not a country. Don't call it that. Oh, that's so interesting. And then I thought about it and I was like, oh, Very yeah. perceptive, yeah. Because you look at, like, really the only other countries, really, that are this big. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Canada, it's big. Yeah. Not as populated, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have, like, China. And when mm-hmm. you say Chinese culture, it's like, oh, <laughs> that whole continent. What part of China? <laughs> yeah. Like, where yeah. there's, like... You know, what city, what neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Like we have so many even like you can't even say, I mean, America is so wild because you're like American food. What does that mean? Yeah. Like unless we're eating what like totally. the natives ate, it's not American food. Yeah, Because absolutely. hamburgers are like hard, like that's our brand. Yeah, as totally. A country. <laughs> really? That's, I'm going to learn how to cook a family yeah. home dish of meatloaf. Yeah. Like that's not. And so when I think about when people are like a generation, mm-hmm. like it's kind of problematic. Yeah. yeah. It's not, and it also, it's not taking in, like, to me, any kind of, um, any kind of study that doesn't take into consideration, like, gender or oh, yeah. socioeconomic background or race. Totally. Like, you're missing an entire part of people's identity. I know. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, uh, any typing of any kind of group of people becomes, like, increasingly problematic when you start to understand, like, uh, kind of how uh, rich and multifaceted uh, our identities are. And also just, like, more and more uh, science kind of shows us this, like, myth of fixed personality, this sense that we are even a single person. And uh, in truth, our kind of our preferences and our sense of self definitely evolves over time, and it uh, changes based on the environments we're in and all that kind of stuff. So in this kind of like in this world of so much complexity and fluidity uh, and diversity, right? Like how do you design things that work for more than one person? Right. Which uh, that's a, that is a good question. When you figure that one out, <laughs> you can, you can tell me about it. <laughs> I think what's so, um, you know, cause a lot of people talk about like young people with startups and all this stuff. Yeah. And the reason that um, people are succeeding in those spaces to me is like, if you're in your early 20s, chances are you grew up understanding apps the same way that we grew up understanding websites. Yeah, totally. Where, like, a lot of people in our generation, at least for a moment, have made like really interesting or successful websites yeah, yeah. to serve ourselves. Yeah, totally. And so when you're trying to create something for this whole group of people you know nothing about or yeah. boil that down to like a headline, mm-hmm. like I was, I was talking to somebody recently and they were asking, I can't remember what we were talking about exactly, but we were talking about sort of just um, surmising information. Yeah. And what I said, it was, actually, it was an Uber driver. We had, like, a deep talk. <laughs> those are always, those are the best talks. Those are some of my favorites. Very good. <laughs> we had a deep talk. I'm sure I was very caffeinated, <laughs> as I am now. And I was like, look, 
what's insane to me is that people are like, tell me about millennials in a sentence, right? Yeah. Or like, tell me about, um, like, the relations in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, like, just, I want it, like, you know, top level. Yeah. And I'm like, if you were to go on a date with somebody <laughs> and go, like, tell me about yourself. Yeah. And then they started and you're like, no, 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 no. Just, just in a sentence. 140 <laughs> characters, let's explain yourself. Like, that would be deeply offensive. And yeah. you want to describe an entire group of people. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, that's... Like, what yeah. a disservice. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we so- spend a, we spend some time, like, uh, we spend some time talking about that as a team, right? I think one of um, generational research, uh, despite being incredibly problematic and uh, creating some, like, I would say, like, false groupings of uh, different types of people, it can, I think that there is some insight in it when you approach it kind of, like, through the spirit of what generational research should accomplish like, mm-hmm. or uncover. One of the things that I think has been really interesting is like uh, some of the more formative events in our life are like shaped by like big cultural moments or big technology introductions or right. um, common experiences. Right. And I think, you know, rather than looking at it as like what's going on in the life of a 25 year old, like one of the things that we like to look at is like what makes um, the way that this generation grew up kind of different than another generation. So one of the ones we're looking at right now is Gen Z. And we're talking a lot about like this kind of like uh, this group of like uh, young adults, like uh, and something kids, like, you know, we're talking about kids. Yeah. Um, uh, and when you start to investigate kind of different corners of their life is where it gets interesting. One of the insights that we had uh, the other day, actually driving back from Rutgers, um, we were just like talking about what it's like to be a teenager these days. And um, we were reflecting on our own college experiences. And one of the things that we all remembered was like, that was back when we still used Facebook. Like we like yeah. used Facebook. Like yeah. Facebook was soup was a was a tool for us socially. Um, yeah. And we talked about this dynamic of like, you'd go out on a weekend and you'd take, you know, 80,000 pictures, somewhere between like eight, eighty, and 8,000 pictures, depending on like what, who, who you were those days. Right. And then you would organize those photos in albums. Yes. Laborious. Right? Yeah. You would like, and that album would have a name and it would be anchored in time. And like you would, when you would go back and reflect on your college experience, you would reflect on it through this like this construct of albums right Mm -hmm. when you think about the way that kids capture their experience today today it doesn't happen in albums it happens in this like kind of like never-ending sequence of like photos being either uploaded uh, uploaded and dissolving in a social platform or just like um in a never-ending relentless stream of like single memories right and so like very ephemeral yeah super ephemeral right um I think there's something really interesting about the way that that actually might change the way that they remember things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. Because they're not anchored in these kind of like arbitrary groupings. Uh, they sent, they tend to be just like kind of coming in almost stream of conscious to uh, their digital devices. And like that, how does that shape the way that we think about ourselves? How does that shape the way we think about our experiences? I think at the generational level, you've got to go really, really tight on like a single shift like that and ask Mm -hmm. ourselves what it means. When you start to look at it from like, you know, a 30,000 foot view and you're talking about like, you know, the way millennials want to work and the way Gen Z wants to work, that stuff can be a bit tricky. Um, So we tend to like really lean into in that sense not necessarily generational groupings, but like subcultures, like the way I think, um, journalism has really started to understand subcultures and report on subcultures and capture them and capture the, like 
you know, the, the grit of them and the people within them and the shared, uh, the shared experiences and commonalities of people that like actively subscribe to like a subculture's ideology. Like that's where we find, I think, better insight than we do at these kind of like macro grouping levels. Yeah. All I can think about is the <laughs> Juggalo movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that stuff is like, I mean... Uh, and it's so relatable because, like, if you grew up in the U.S., it's a very, especially, I don't know, if you grew up bouncing around different parts, like, I have, like, the Inland Empire in yeah. New Mexico, like, you're aware of it. Yeah. And then to see, like, the full culture in and of itself, yeah. and it's, you know, when you were talking about the ephemeral nature of a lot of Gen Z's experience and the way... Yeah. Um, that they will remember things. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, there's a lot in my own life I wouldn't remember if I hadn't seen it in my camera roll or totally. my photo roll when I yeah. went through it. And it just made me think about how much that translates to other parts of um, our lives when mm-hmm. we're so used to that, especially with um, Gen Z or, like, very young millennials. And, you know, I think about how other generations, like our grandparents and even some of our parents and some of ourselves, depending on how much we related to mm-hmm. each generation... Like, they have the archive of photos, right? And they yeah. have VHSs. But then also, like, they've had the same furniture for forever. Yeah. <laughs> where, as, like, I think about the way that I've moved. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, every time I move, I'm, like, oh, it would be, it would cost me more to rent a U-Haul. Oh, yeah. I'll sell all my furniture. Yeah. And then I'll buy used furniture when I get somewhere. Yeah. Just a... Uh, lesser sense of attachment to things right, right? like leasing cars using yeah. ride shares like rather than needing to and like using zip car and stuff like that rather yeah. than needing to have a car and even rent the runway and things yeah. like that where it's like it's literally translating to almost every aspect yeah. of life mm-hmm. and the amount of people that I know who are like around our age or a little bit younger yeah who I mean, even relationships, right? Like, think about how much people ghost people. Yeah. Because you can just do that. And yeah. it's just very quick. And how people are fine with having, like, a weekend friendship at a music festival yeah. that they don't have to keep in touch with. Yeah. How does that affect us? What does that... Where does that come from? What do we do with it next? I think uh, there's a lot... I have, like... That's a that's very much a thing right now. And I think it's... Uh, it can be pretty toxic. Like, it can show up in toxic ways. I think you look at, like, disposable fashion and, like, yeah. just the incredible waste that, like, fast fashion has, like, created for the totally. world. It's... I think it's still the same sentiment of, like, a kind of, like, reluctantness to, like, invest and own things, right? Like, yeah. we have a bit of... Um, you know, we have a, a bit of a reluctance to, like think about our identity and ourselves in such like fixed, stable, concrete ways, especially when it comes to the ways that we express ourselves. We want, you know, space and fluidity and flexibility in that we don't want to have to, you know, like for your furniture example, we like, we care more about an ability to move to another city easily um, than we care about like collecting and kind of like curating a sense of objects for ourselves over a longer period of time. Right. Um, But also I think that same, that same, uh, like leaning into the ephemeral uh, and like uh, reluctantness to own um, also has produced some like really good stuff. I think you look at Rent the One, Rent the Runway. Um, I'm a huge Rent the Runway fan. I think like what they've done is given us a better model for how like when we collectively share things and don't individually share things, we can actually reduce like waste globally. Totally. Um, I'm also I use. Uh, have you heard of this company called For Days? No. Because I'm a, oh, I'm a big fan of theirs. They, uh, they are a new startup, um, and it's basically, I would call it like a t-shirt subscription service where, 
Um, but it's all closed loop. So you basically, you can order like, I think four, eight or 12 teas. Uh, don't quote me on that. You should like go online and actually like look at How their subscription four plans. Days? Four days, like F-O-R-D-A-Y-S. Oh, okay. We're at Megan's apartment. There's some background there's, noise. There's some, yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> you this all is, dealt with work. This might be the quietest place in New York right now, and there's still going to be some background noise. <laughs> um, no, so uh, there's this company called Four Days, uh, mm-hmm. and you basically uh, you sign up for a plan, and they send you your first batch of T-shirts, um, and the entire experience is closed loop. So when those T-shirts rip or fade or you you know grow tired of them, you actually send them back. Uh, they uh, break them down uh, uh, into like and redye the thread and respin the thread and make another batch of T-shirts, and they send you That's another amazing. eight. And so you get into this like really cool practice of. Uh, like a, what a closed loop clothing ecosystem could look like. Um, and I've been using them for, I think about like a year now. Um, and I love it. I'll like never That's go back. That's so cool. Yeah. I so look into most of my wardrobe now is a set of like four days tees and like, uh, the rent the runway, like weekly box. And like, that's a, that's become a really cool way to like own less, but also still be able to like, you know, be expressive and like yeah. love fashion. Like it's okay to love fashion and also want to save the planet. Like there's, there should be a world where those two things can coexist. Right. I agree with you. There was on episodes nine and 10, um, I had on two really incredible, uh, people who are at the intersection of fashion and technology. Yeah. And one of them, Brittany Hicks, she, uh, does, uh, like supply chain and operation oh, cool. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we got very into that. But obviously, like, she also, like, most of us want to look good and wear yeah. cool stuff without making a negative impact on yeah. the world. So we talked a lot about that. And then Jessica Couch, she's actually in New York. You guys would get along amazingly. <laughs> she, I sat in on her and Brittany's panel at South by, oh, and cool. afterwards I was like, please be on the podcast. <laughs> like, can you, like, do you have energy for the today? Yeah. Um, because she is a fit technology strategist. Oh, cool. And so she works with retail brands and fashion mm. companies to leverage fit technology and data. Oh, interesting. And what she does is fascinating where it's like, you know, using, um, like, basically scans like 3d scans of yeah. bodies we're using i can't remember what the name of the cameras are yeah we're using these cameras that do that yeah cool right to make clothes that fit better yeah because if clothes fit better you won't have as many returns yeah. or as much dead That's inventory cool. i like that and also to plan better for mm-hmm. like okay if this is a someone's body at 20 and this is her body at 30 interesting for I this demographic that. like how can we make a shirt that fits her or pants that fit her at both times. Yeah, that's so cool. I and mean, like, it's yeah. Our sizing systems are so broken, right? We're like, we just assume that as as bodies get, <laughs> we just assume bodies get wider. We don't like understand that like maybe as sizes get bigger, our like body actually like changes in its shape and like right. Uh, you rearrange also, the furniture. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Like I had to go up a whole pant size or two when I was training for a marathon. Yeah, totally. Just because my legs got more muscle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then my waist got smaller. I know. And it was like, oh, nothing. All of my old clothes. Like, I haven't gained any mm-hmm. weight. Just yeah things shifted yeah I mean living oh my god I can only imagine living at the intersection of like manufacturing efficiency and like uh better tailoring clothes to people's bodies like those are the spaces that I think are going to be really interesting in the next five years right people that like can walk into those spaces and like uh ask ourselves how we can have both instead of asking ourselves how we can choose and I think um part of my one of my favorite things about like the the younger generation of entrepreneurs as most of us are asking those questions, right? Yeah. Like how can we, how can both of those things exist at the same time rather than 
um, assuming that like the practices of the past have to continue going forward. Right. What is one way, because you have like, I mean, we've known each other for a few years yeah. and I feel like you inherently also are somebody who questions why things are done the way they're done. <laughs> How have you learned to like, because, you know, you can question that and you get a lot of pushback. Yeah. Naturally, yeah. because as you know, when, when we talk about the more like conglomerate type agencies, yeah. you know, you have a lot of people who've been there for a long time. Oh, their yeah. egos are tied up in that that was their process and they're close to it yeah. and they're scarred from what happened before or whatever. Yeah. How have you honed how you approach changing things mm. um, to be successful in changing things? Oh man, it's, it's going to get really existential. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah. I don't, uh, I think we all kind of, go through our own journeys with uh with the question like what do we believe to be true and why right Mm -hmm. um you know when I when I started in advertising um I like I was obsessed with like knowing in a weird way like I read like every good or bad like business book that came out I like consistently operated on like four hours of sleep um I would like believe that some people were experts in some things and then discount other people's advice because I maybe didn't like it or didn't respect Mm. what they had done in the past. Um, I lived in this world of like kind of um, like information currency and I saw myself in that way where it was like my job at the table to know more than anybody else. And uh, I was not, uh, despite the fact that I thought I was good at my job in that era of my career, I was not very good at my job um, because I had such a, a rigid sense of a right way of doing things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, when actually I don't, I would not be surprised if my mind on that started to change (laughs) when I started to learn a bit more about, uh, Buddhism and meditation. (laughs) Like I think those two things probably started to emerge at the same time in my life. I was also just exhausted. Like trying to be right is exhausting. Um, yeah. Uh, and it just, it like, it, often uh, has the opposite effect of what you come in kind of like holding close to you and wanting to be true. Um, so I went through, went through a phase of like actually just like really questioning myself and what I knew and um, uh, kind of the dynamic I was bringing into jobs and rooms and my own career where I actually started to get a lot better. I believe at my job is when uh, I really, really started to respect that like curiosity and um, uh, a kind of like appropriate suspicion of your own knowledge is like the best way to practice your craft where it is your job to like, you know, help the team get to the best answer. Um, and there's a lot of different answers that can be viable than like coming up with it yourself. And I think the second I kind of like loosen my grip on my own, (laughs) on my own sense of self-worth and my own role in our industry, and even like my own concept of what what rightness is, um, mm-hmm. was when I started to actually do some pretty interesting work where I let, uh, I was much better at letting people change my mind. Uh, I was also, um, uh, much more exploratory with my job where I said, where I like realized that like maybe looking at business books is like a very narrow way of like exploring what our practice actually is, which is creativity and design. Right. Yeah. Um, and like studying other people's processes. One of the things I'm really interested in right now is like contemporary art and performance art and how are people, you know, what is so different about the way that a performance artist, um, kind of like approaches their craft as like the way a brand approaches social, like both are performative, right? What's to say that we should follow one process in one arena and another, um, in this kind of like corporate world that we like find ourselves living in. 
Um, so I think in that sense, uh, just like really starting that questioning, uh, with yourself is like kind of a good place to start. Yeah. Um, I would say though, certainly don't start it with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be like, well, all of you should think about the ways that you might not be right. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I read a book. I, yeah. I know what I'm talking about. I read about. a book on Buddhism and all of you need to question everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of moments of kind of like laughter and self-reflection when you talk about that stuff. But the truth is, I mean, um, one really, really good creatives, really good strategists, like, kind of kill their ego, right? Like yeah. if they see it as, um, they like, a, I think I watched some really, really talented people that were far better at their jobs than I was walk into every room asking what they could learn from the individuals in that room and the room itself, right? Like I think uh, I went through an era of working with what I felt like were a lot of kind of like close-minded, uh, you know, it's kind of an industry trope, like the close-minded account person. Yeah. But the truth was like that account person had so much experience in the category with that company that like, rather than changing their mind, when they gave me feedback, the first thing I should have really been doing is like asking them questions. Oh, like, what have you seen in your career that's like led you to believe that? Like, what do you believe? Um, like, what do you believe about this idea is risky? What, uh, what do you believe won't work and why? Right? Because often when you get two to three questions into what might be feedback you don't like or hard feedback or even like an opinion you don't respect there's usually some good stuff in there and that actually yeah. like you can take that with you and like use it in your kind of your own practice um, both as like what it's like to be alive as a human being right now mm-hmm. also in the practice of like uh defining strategies that work uh for organizations I like you know it's really it's really crazy because the right answer if an or if an organization can't execute it is not the right answer Right. Like I've spent I spent my whole career writing these like really kind of like rich, nuanced, complex strategies that I believe like are this like kind of precision approach to helping a business accomplish something. And then, you know, you go spend you go spend a day in the halls of Nike and you realize that like one phrase that maybe like Phil Knight or Bill Bowerman said is the most powerful strategic artifact you could ever imagine, because, you know, in rooms across an incredibly matrixed uh uh, and in, uh, and broad and expansive organization, everyone is asking the same question, like, how do we serve the athlete? And a phrase like that, despite it not being new or different, or maybe like a precision, a precision approach for each like kind of like player within the Nike organization, when everybody in the organization is asking themselves that same question, that's how strategy works best. That's where advantages happen. That's where like really cool, interesting, but also cohesive work comes from. And so I think for me, like each kind of like layer, layer year, job in my career I have another one of those moments that makes me completely reevaluate and reinvestigate what I know to be true and that's the part of the job I like but it's also one of the harder parts of the job to like really embrace absolutely yeah have you gone back and like apologized to people I probably should oh man I I think about that for myself oh yeah because I for sure have gone through long phases of being arrogant and probably horrible to work with yeah and then I, and I'm like, oh God, yeah. what do those people, like, I don't even care what they say about me. Like, yeah. how do they feel about me? I when know. They, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're friends on Facebook. <laughs> they see that stuff and go like, ugh. I know. I think I'm, I'm lucky that I had some pretty, um, forgiving, like, I get with a good, just call it partners in that area. I, uh, I will give a shout out to a specific individual, Jeff Sternstein. Jeff, if you're out there. 
you were always right. Um, you know, I worked you with... You should Jeff. send this to him. I will. I'm totally going to. Jeff, Jeff was so great. I'm so patient with me. I mean, he just... It was at this era in my career where I really... I just, like, like a lot of women, I just really, like, was craving being recognized and being heard in rooms. I was in rooms for the first time that I, in the past, hadn't been invited into and, like, you know, had a lot of had a lot of personal baggage wrapped up in like being seen in those rooms and being respected, especially if you're like, you know, especially if you're younger in a leadership position, it's really easy to spend a lot of your time, uh, not in the work thinking about, you know, what you're actually there to do, but thinking about how other people see you. It can be like kind of a toxic cycle. One of the things that Jeff really coached me on was like simplicity. Like I was, I was writing work. I was creating work that was like incredibly complex. Right. And I, I thought that that was me doing my job. I thought that was me coming up with really considered detailed, um, kind of thorough, exhaustive plans. I think I, I'm sure more than once I said to Jeff, uh, that this was the appropriate amount of complexity the problem uh, demanded, right? It was just like, <laughs> if you can't get on board with this complexity, you're just like, we're not going to be able to solve the problems that we're tackling. You're diminishing. I it. know, right? Like I just, I was so, I had so much like self-importance in my own work and my own kind of perspective. And you know, oh man, 10 years later, eight, 10 years later, like the thing I go into rooms talking to strategists about is like simplicity, memorability. Like we are working with these massive companies that like execute at a global scale. Like, you know, is somebody two weeks after you present this work going to be able to remember the things you said and actually implement them in mm -hmm. uh, like in their daily choices, right? Like that's what strategy right. is. It's about shaping daily choices, both in people's lives and in the lives of like people and businesses. And so like, you know, Jeff was always right. He was always right in asking me to simplify my work. He was always right in helping me and pushing me to distill it. And while I bucked it so hard, you know, in the moments when it was introduced, I think, you know, years later, it's kind of important to recognize that like, yeah, I had some stuff to learn from him, even though I didn't want to learn it, even though I didn't believe I had some stuff to learn from him. He was right in a lot of rooms where I wanted to believe he was wrong. And I think like starting to like coach your own self-awareness on that stuff where you're like, Ooh, like, you know, why, why am I so upset when Jeff tells me to simplify something? Why am I so like emotionally wound up about that? There's like a lot of introspection that can be pretty like powerful. Uh, <laughs> my dog's sensing my emotional feelings about Jeff Sternstein. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I think, I mean, we all find ourselves in those rooms and I think knowing that we've been in those rooms in the past, it's good in the present to ask ourselves, like, where might we be doing that stuff today? Like, how can we grow from it? That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> um, you've answered so many of my questions without me even asking. Oh, man. Oh, I know. So because Megan and I are friends, <laughs> I get to hear, uh, like, personal life things too. <laughs> And she and her dad Ruh -roh. have a really cool relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um, where he challenges a lot of your ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and how has that, like, how has that shaped the way that you have conversations and sort of disagreements with people? Yeah. Oh man, the Don. Uh, my dad's name is Don Murray. We affectionately call him the Don. That's beautiful. Uh, um, so my dad was a trial lawyer, um, which meant that he grew up uh, kind of in the business of. Um, like crafting arguments to go in front of a jury, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was in the business of argument. Um, later in his career, he actually left uh, practicing law to go start a software company. So he went from being a lawyer to being an entrepreneur and learned a lot about what it takes to build a business, right? And so 
you know, me growing up in my home, uh, being interested in a lot of different corners of, I would say, like professional industries. I didn't, I don't, I didn't grow up knowing I wanted to be in advertising. Um, but I did, I was like very interested in business. Um, surprisingly the ethics of business growing up, um, which is a lot about my like young idealism anyway. Um, and my mom's a psychologist, right? So I had like a lawyer, a lawyer, entrepreneur, dad, and a psychologist mother. And so at the dinner table, we would, we would not just talk about things. We would talk about why things were the way they were and like start to unpack that. And, you know, being a precocious young woman who had very supportive parents, I'd come into a lot of those, you know, high school, <laughs> high school, uh, dinner conversations with like hot takes, you know, when you're 16, you've got some hot takes, uh, and you think, you know, <laughs> yeah, because you like randomly read the New York times that weekend, or like you're reading a book in your philosophy class. Um, and my dad was really, really good at both letting me have opinions and showing me the importance of, uh, challenging my assumptions right mm -hmm. um really I was a uh, really really like I was painfully nerdy growing up um I still like wanted to pretend I was cool but like I really liked learning like I liked the process of like discovering mm -hmm. new things I think that's part of the job part of the reason why I like strategy so much is like that kind of moment of like intellectual discovery is like really powerful for me but you know my dad would <laughs> often uh do what he did best as a trial lawyer. He would like lead the witness. You know, he would like ask me a provocative question. Uh, I would come in with my 16 year old hot take based on like a single point of information I had in my life. And then he would begin to uh, show me maybe some other ways of thinking about it. Um, and the great part about that is my mom was always on the other side of the table with like, well, actually this might actually have to do with the way humans process X, Y, and Z and like the psychology of what it's like to be this type of person. Or have you ever thought about behavior change in this way? And so I had these two parents that were, you know, both, um, really patient with me kind of like finding my own voice and exploring, uh, ideas and opinions, uh, letting me have hot takes, uh, but then also gently reminding me that like, I may, I may not know everything despite the fact that I, uh, believe I do, uh, which is kind of a nice theme you're probably picking up on, uh, in my <laughs> own personal journey. But like, thank God for people like that. I know. I was very similar. Uh -huh. And luckily my dad and I would have deep conversations yeah. about, uh, all the ways that anything I ever thought could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and thank God, otherwise I'd be a total tyrant. Yeah. I would be horrible. Yeah, totally. So I understand when people are terrible. Yeah. I understand why. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, if I were a man. Yeah. What a nightmare I would be. Are you kidding me? I, yes, I do. I do know. I have thought the same thing. If I were a man and didn't have a dad like that. Yeah. And also didn't care about like doing the right thing at all. Yeah. Which is something my dad taught me. That is not something native to my personality. Yeah. I totally. care about other, I care about like people being treated well. Yeah, totally. But if I think like natively what I, I didn't even understand like, cause I grew up very Christian. Yeah. And I would sit there and think, like, why does, if someone doesn't believe in this and doesn't believe in, like, setting yeah. a good example for people so that they go to church, why would you ever do the right thing? Yeah. Like, I was like, I, and I seriously still sometimes grapple with, like, how do you teach kids how to do the right thing yeah. without the Bible? Which is, like, it's not something that I, I'm not, like, still going to church or anything. Yeah. But, like, the sense of morality to me was, like, I cared so much about other people seeing that, like, oh, I was, you know 
a caring person because like the caring yeah. thing is always there but for sure like the idea of like uh like money laundering always really appealed to me as a kid <laughs> And I was like, well, what's the problem? Who's the victim here? Yeah. You know what I mean? How very Ozark of you. Oh, I was man. like, very, in, even to this day, I'll scheme up ways that you oh. could just have a cash only business oh, and move totally. still around. Yeah, I probably yeah. shouldn't say this word for the form. I love it. But I'm constantly like, very well, entrepreneurial of you. <laughs> in all the wrong ways. Yeah. You know? But my dad would constantly be like, even I had a, an argument with a good friend once, and we had like a, uh, a project together that we were yeah. like 50 50 business partners on i was cool. really frustrated i called my dad about it and i was like hey, i just don't know what to do yeah so my dad was you know telling me definitely what a dad would say yeah. in terms of like being on my side yeah and he called me back five minutes later and he was like you know what Lene? i love you and you're my daughter yeah anyone who hurts you i want to break their knees yeah that's how i feel yeah but I want you to think about what the right thing to do is in this situation yeah. and not what you feel like you deserve. Yeah. And that was like Those a moments. really, yeah. yeah. And like, and he's always said to me that he cares the most about doing the right thing. Yeah. Which, uh, to me has sometimes been frustrating mm -hmm. because that means that when we were on our way out the door, sometimes we were late because he would notice worms dying on the sidewalk <laughs> from when it rained and we needed to stop and pick them up. And I would be like, there's a neighborhood boy I have a crush on. What if he sees me picking up a worm yeah. off the street? You monster. Uh, um, but that's like a really beautiful priority to be, yeah. to realize that you can have that, especially outside of a religious context to go like, oh, this person yeah. doesn't care about doing this out of like a faith-based thing. It's because they just genuinely care about being a good person. Yeah. Oh, um, man. Which gotten some. So good. I know. I've gotten some hard truths from my parents. I Two, two come to mind. One is... Um, uh, I took a break from working agency side to work for a uh, women's running apparel startup called Wazelle. Oh, uh, right. spelled O-I-S-E-L-L-E. -E. It's a great by women for women uh, running company. Um, it's a super cool group of individuals, and I'm super proud to have worked there. Uh, and like most people in the world, I had a moment where I tweeted something stupid uh, in front of a lot of people. Um, and I kind of, you know, it came from... Uh, I don't really know. I don't really know why I did it. I did it. Uh, maybe I was feeling like particularly emboldened. I think I also had a phase where I didn't realize in that role how many people may have actually been watching me as an ambassador of the company. Um, you can probably, if you care enough in Twitter, you can go back and uh, you can go back and find it. But anyway, um, tweeted something stupid. It wasn't uh, it wasn't like offensive and it didn't hurt anyone, but it was it was wrong. Like I I said it and it was uh, it was. Uh, it was not a well-considered thing to say. Um, uh, and the internet told me so. Like, the internet basically, like, I had one of those moments where uh, the outrage culture of the internet decides, like, you're going to be the focal point for the next, you know, six hours, which feels like six years. But yeah. it is, it's like, brutal. yeah, and, like, uh, I think the kind of, like, the hostility of that just, like, really, really hits you. I remember... I tweeted it before I got on a plane to go. Ooh. Yeah, it was just, it was very, what was her name? The the South African Yeah, girl. oh, just, was it Justine? I don't remember. Oh, God. But that was, I can't even imagine getting back on the internet. Yeah, well, I was, so I was on the internet on the plane, and I was, I was watching it unfold, and kind of, like, sitting in a middle seat, just, like, having that moment by myself, being God, like, oh, this sweating. is really bad. Sweating, crying, 
Uh, just like at one point I'd like put away my computer, open it up again. It was just like, it was the, you know, it was the, the All car the wreck. Of grief. Yeah. It was the car wreck. You can't take your eyes off of, but you're in the car. Right. It was yeah. pretty terrible. I remember getting off the plane. First person I called was my dad. Uh, and I wanted him to tell me that it was going to be okay. Like what I wanted him to say was like, it wasn't wrong and you're going to be okay. And what I got from him was like, Oh, that sounds really hard. Uh, and when I asked him, like, if I thought, if he thought I was going to be fired for it, he said, you might be like, and they might not be wrong to fire you for it. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. because you know, moments like that do come back to the brand. They do like, they cost individuals and transactions and money and attention. And, you know, I think I was lucky that the people around me let me apologize and they let me kind of have that redemptive moment with like our followers, our audience, our customers, um, Sally, our CEO, like we talked it through and, you know, we decided it wasn't as harmful as maybe I had personally thought it was and that yeah. the company was going to stand behind me, even though I maybe said something dumb. There was, you know, an official apology letter that went out to uh, a group of people in email. There's just like, there were a lot of like, kind of, um, there was a lot of course corrections that I made with the company. But yeah. the moment where my dad told me that like, I might be fired and they might not be wrong for doing it was like a really powerful moment in my career because it's yeah. like, well, you know, I know he loves me. I know he has my back going through anything. He also, you know, he also tells me when I'm wrong. And he I loves think you enough to let you learn. Yeah. And I like, you know, I've, that's one of those things where like, uh, you're going to, you're going to walk away from that feeling really differently when your parents let you learn than when they like kind of insulate you from maybe yeah, your own you toxic behaviors. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have another one with my mom that's all, it's always been really powerful and like stayed with me, which is, um, I know you and I have talked about this before, but like we, I have, uh, I have trouble with, um, hurtful people. Like mm -hmm. I, I tend to see people who inflict pain on others as being, um, deserving of the pain that I might want to inflict on them. Right. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird Thank thing, God you're right? Not yeah, like just uh, <laughs> you're mean, and I'm going to be mean to you to let you know that you're mean, right? right. And I've always had, I've always had a bit of trouble with, um, you know, uh, the bullies of the world or the prickly pears or, um, you know, the the grumpy people who like uh, tend to kind of have like that shock and effect on the people around them. One of the things that my mom like really coached me through growing up is uh, that usually. Uh, under anger, there is often a lot of grief. Yeah. Um, and that when I see people who are angry, the first question that I should ask myself is, are they in fact not angry, but sad or hurting, um, mm -hmm. or are they in pain? And like, what is the, where is that anger coming from? And also within myself, uh, where is my anger coming from? Like when I, when I have that visceral reaction to somebody else, really asking myself like, why in fact I feel so angry in a response to like a trigger or a person like that. And I think cultivating that compassion in me to like recognize that anger is often kind of grief in disguise or like grief coming out of the body. And also in my own experiences, when I find myself in that state, asking myself, uh, what in fact I am responding to, the truth is it's often something about somebody else that I also see in myself that I don't like. I tend to really dislike people in a weird way that I identify with negatively. Yeah. And I think like, you know, it takes a really patient mom to like teach you. I'm like, so I'm so lucky that I had such present and supportive parents, but like, you know, those lessons are ones that are really important in life. And I had parents that were willing to both like, let me make mistakes in those spaces so that when, you know, 
when I learned lessons, they stuck, right? They, yeah. they felt important. They felt significant. Definitely. And, and to like make it not always a situation where like, I don't know, like where, like you're saying, like you're always right. Yeah. And to make it that rather than to make it what they did instead yeah. of, because you know, it also, what happens is I've, I have close friends whose parents did not take that approach. Yeah. And what they, rather than understanding that, like, as their friend, I care enough about them Mm -hmm. to let them know where they could do better. Yeah. They see anything that is not 100% my support of whatever they've done. Yeah. As, like, a disdain or disrespect Mm -hmm. or, like, I'm not on their side. Yeah, totally. And, um... And trying to explain to them, and I have a few family members like that too, Yeah. who have said, like, you're never on my side, yeah. and it's like, no, I am enough, and yeah. I believe in you enough to say anything, Yeah. because there are people in this world who I hear their problems, and I see the way that um, they maybe don't do anything to solve them, and the way that they have had every opportunity mm-hmm. to solve those, Yeah. and make, you know, make better choices than they don't. Yeah. I don't take the time to give them feedback, yeah. because it's a waste of my energy. So true. Um... There's for sure yeah. an art in that. Like, how do you stand beside someone and disagree with them or um, help them see that, like, maybe you don't believe in what they believe in in that moment? Or, like, how do you love somebody but disagree with their behavior, yeah. right? And like, it changes per person because yeah. everybody's so different in the way that they receive information yeah. and internalize things. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the exact same situation can really hurt one person. Mm-hmm. And from other people might grow from that and other people might internalize that. And I think, um, it, but it does take a level of Zen to like be a little bit more emotionally removed. And, um, this girl, Erica Bell that I worked with, who's like one of few people that I've ever worked with and handed off a project to and felt like confident that not only would she do an incredible job, but like do a way better job than I ever would, which was such a good feeling. Mm -hmm. And she said something to me about, um, you know, the difference between reacting to something and responding to something. Uh, yeah. And that was a huge learning yes. for me to go like, oh, yeah, there is a big... And I've talked a bit to my therapist about this, yeah. about, okay, well, that's an emotional reaction. Yeah. And, like, you need to have a response to this. Like, yeah, totally. Don't just do what first comes to mind. Like, mm-hmm. think about why that bothers you so much. Yeah. And, you know, what the the what's the benefit of like, if someone's really mean, <laughs> what is the benefit of being mean back? Yeah. Is that solving anything? Yeah, totally. And it takes like, I think there's something really, it's a super powerful idea, but I even think about it in my own body of like, uh, I think about how, you know, there have been interactions with, you know, take my mom, for example, where like I brought a lot of hostility into a conversation and she had the presence and like, for lack of a better word, like grace to actually like take in my hostility and turn it into a gentleness that she was able to respond with. Right. Mm -hmm. Like a, and like a, and that kindness to be able to disagree in that demeanor versus like, to your point, like react emotionally or throw the fire back at the other person. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's actually, that skill is something I, uh, like I really personally value, I keep working Agreed. on it. I think it shows up in work as much as it shows up in life. Like mm-hmm. how do you disagree totally. gently in a room with somebody yeah. and let them know that like, while you believe in like, you know, so much of what so many of the rooms I'm in are with really, really passionate young creatives who are, um, you know, they have potential far beyond their self-awareness of it. Right. And they, 
you know, at that, in an early stage of your creative career, you come into rooms with work that you've really like, you've bled for, right? Mm -hmm. Like you've stayed up late, you've gotten in early, you've cut down your own ideas and you walk into a room and like, you know, sometimes while you believe in the, in your heart of hearts as that young creative that your work is there, like it might need another round. And so how do you, how do you have that moment gently with somebody? Right. Yeah. Uh, And also like, let them see it before, like, rather than you finding it in your own kind of like set of responsibilities to like tell them that their work needs another round or to grow or to change. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think about how many people in my career have done that gently with my own work that it's kind of becomes when you're treated in that way, it becomes almost like a, a mission or a missive to like continue that with the people around you, because that's where it's where good work comes from. That's where good working relations uh, relationships come from. And when you can have that culture in an office is where Mm -hmm. you can do really beautiful work, I think. Yeah. And foster people's growth. Totally. Because otherwise, if everything is so back and forth, like I think really learning how to give something time and like the right response really helps people grow. Yeah. Because otherwise, and I've seen it, you know, I'm sure I've done it in my own roles where, um, I was so defensive that I didn't take opportunities to grow. Yeah. And then kind of realized like, Oh, we finished a whole project. (laughs) And, uh, I don't really feel like I learned anything. (laughs) Whose fault is that? You know? Yeah, totally. Um, and that's really tricky. So, uh, you did talk a little bit about where you feel like you may have like faltered emotionally and internally in the way yeah. you thought about things. Are there any like standout sort of failures that you have oh, that you can talk about yeah. and like what could share? I I mean, yeah, I think in um, I've uh, I would say you could just look at my career as a series of repeated failures that I've managed <laughs> to like somehow moonwalk out of yeah right um I mean I think uh a lot of my in a weird way uh a lot of my failures have manifested in like really toxic behaviors that I like hold inside of myself like I would say you could look at my career as a series of just like very very prominent burnouts <laughs> like one job <laughs> to the next right um and I tend to like in that kind of like flaming out of like you know being a comet that like dissolves into the atmosphere I think you know that comes for me that has that has manifested in every job as me feeling like I am pushing against you know an immovable object but like uh, I'm kind of like relentless, uh, in my, <laughs> in that pursuit and, um, unwilling to understand that like, maybe that, that wall is in fact, not a wall, it's a curtain and there's another way around it. Right. Or that like, mm-hmm. maybe there's somebody on the other side of that wall that I'm pushing against, but they've actually walked around it. And I might need to talk to them a bit more. So I think, you know, I've, uh, I've had a version of that in almost every role I've been in. Um, it usually manifests as a meeting where I, uh, first cry in a bathroom. Me and me and a bathroom stall cry or like go way back. Uh, managed to put enough water on my face to like make it look like I make it convince myself that like <laughs> convince myself that other people don't realize I've been crying, but like you know everyone knows what a crying face looks like. Uh, and then in that in that meeting in that review in that moment, like having a hard kind of like come to Jesus where you recognize your failures and you have to like recognize your failures in kind of a powerful way in front of somebody whose job it is to like 
coach you or mentor you or bring you to the next space. And like, I, I spend a lot of time working. I usually take my jobs, uh, to work for an individual, right? Like I often will pick the, pick a career, pick a job, pick a role, um, because I believe in the person who would be my manager and mentor. And I think it's been, it's a trait that served me well, but it means that those meetings where you face a hard truth about yourself or like have to discuss a failure with somebody else or like learn the hard lesson and have to talk about how you were wrong in that room, like those hurt a lot more when the person sitting across from you is somebody that you really trust and respect. And so I think in my current job, my, um, my boss, Canal, uh, I took this role to work for him. I think he's like a, he's a managing director who came up through strategy. Uh, and I, a lot of, a lot of his traits are things I wish I, I was right. He's like calm, measured. Um, uh, he leaves a lot of room for other people to grow, uh, but manages to come in and coach and support teams when they need him. Uh, he is like, He's like that kind of, I would like, I would joke that I would follow him off of a cliff because I just like, I have such admiration for him, uh, and the way that he, um, uh, both leads and also, um, thinks about our jobs and, and our ability to like affect change in the world in our, in our careers. But I, you know, when you have that, when you have those hard truth moments where like, you know, when I'm sitting across Canal and I'm like, I'm telling him that I recognize that like that thing I did, maybe I like. I gripped it so tightly, I suffocated everyone on the team or like in thinking that I knew the right way, I actually maybe like blew up a scope or like uh, took a client in the wrong direction. Or like, I think the latest one is, um, you know, I spent, I think, six months working on a project uh, and made it such that the second I walked away from the work, it was unsustainable because of the way I designed and coached the team to work, right? Mm. Like required my presence in the work. And therefore I failed that team because part of the conditions of me working on that project was at some point I was going to have to step off the business. And so, you know, when you look at, when you look at a failure like that and you say, uh, that I, I picked the route that maybe was like, required me to be at the center of it or was anchored around my tendencies, not theirs. Like those are hard failures because Which wasn't the goal, right? Yeah. Cause there yeah, are yeah. some people who are like, well, no, I need to make myself needed so oh, yeah. for job security, which I know you and that's not your personality. Yeah. So that being said, it was like an unintentional yeah. uh, outcome. Totally. Of your plan. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like where it's my job to help a team be successful and I failed them. Like my failure was, is no, my failures at this point in my career are no longer just about me and failing like people that either work for me or with me. Um, and I think that's, uh, those lessons are, are hard ones to talk about. Um, but the good news is if you're talking about them again, like you're able to, you're able to hopefully not make that mistake again. And, uh, you know, recognize that like, <laughs> while you want every one of those super painful meetings to be the last one, like you're just going to keep having them. But that's, I mean, at the same time on a more macro, less, I mean, very pragmatic level. Yeah. You never want those to be the last ones because when you stop growing. Oh, for sure. Which is death to me. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The moment I stop being challenged and I'm just told to do that same thing again on the next project, that is the moment that I'm like, okay, well then that, this is not for me. Yeah. Because what am I, there's, um, I had a really great conversation once with the, he was at the time, the CEO of an agency I was at, this really great guy, Joseph Debbins. And our conversation was about like just the symbiotic relationship between employer and employee. Yeah, totally. Like, yes, of course I expect a paycheck, right? 
but also I expect to learn and grow uh, yeah. and be yeah, challenged yeah. and mentally stimulated yeah. and enjoy the people I work yeah, with. Yeah, totally. And you as my employer expect me to deliver good work mm-hmm. and be uh, a pleasant person to work with, <laughs> yeah. you know, Yeah. and also do my job. Mm-hmm. And so how do we both serve each other? Because, at, you know, and all that being said, you know, employers need employees much more than we need oh, them. Oh, yes. That is the <laughs> that is the the thing that no one wants to talk about, but right. is painfully true. Yeah, I like I think um uh, I am uh I'm a big fan of uh Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, like AOC is like yes. I just am super inspired by her as a politician and a leader and a human. Um but she she has some great thoughts on like servant leadership and how it is her mm. job you know, it is her job um, to represent the people around her, not necessarily to tell them what to do. And I think, I think about that concept of servant leadership a lot at work in terms of like, you know, when I, now when I sit with teams, a, a big part of what I ask myself is like, what does that team need to make their best work, right? Not right. necessarily my best work, but like, how do I help like this group of individuals unlock, you know, like their potential, their, mm-hmm. what's in their heads. How do I help them get out of their own way? Like, what can I learn from them? Like, what do they know about this work that I'm never going to get to if I am insisting that it's my voice leading the direction? How do I help these people have good meetings, right? I think one of the things that's really important for me now is to understand that, like, you know, if I can help people be their best, it means that I can, in a weird way, affect more rooms than I can be in at any given time. And when you're at a startup, when you're at a small shop, like that's kind of the name of the game, right? Like you can't be in every room. There's not enough bodies in leadership to be able to like lead every meeting and have every phone call. And so, you know, all of those conversations, especially with junior teams start really young where you help them find their voice. They don't need to mimic your voice. They're all going to have their own voices. And how do you help them build their verse, their best version of the craft versus like some imitation of what you've decided your version of that same thing is? Um, we've touched on this a little bit, but I would love to hear, because I've seen you burn out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, what have you learned in terms of, uh, managing your own, like, wellness and health? Yeah. uh, Both physically and mentally. And so, like, what kind of tools have you put in place? Yeah. Um, to hopefully prevent that from happening again? Yeah. Um, two things. One, I, I know now that, Uh, the consequences of me burning out are not just with me. They are with all of the people I work with. And like when I am burnt out, I am not my best in those rooms. I'm not my best as a leader, as a mentor, as a coach, as a teammate. Um, And so I think one is recognizing the impact of your burnout as being greater than yourself is like really important. Yeah. Um, uh, I am also, when I am in that phase of burnout, I am, less awesome to the people I love outside of work. Uh, And that is, uh, that is not something I figured out yet, but it is um, the awareness of kind of like the consequences of those actions has started to help me take them a bit more seriously. Um, And I actually, I'm pretty honest with the people around me of that like tendency that I have. Um, One of the big things I talk about with my boss Canal is like, I need you to help me see when I'm burning out because I will, uh, I will ignore it. I will pretend it's not there. I will refuse it. Right. Like I need you to be my feedback loop on that front because like I have not yet developed, uh, or fully developed that muscle Mm -hmm. and for my team, like to create rooms in which, you know, they feel safe enough to talk to me about like when they need help and they're not getting it from me. And like a big thing, I think that's really important in strategy is like really good strategists are very, very, 
I found really good strategists are quick to acknowledge when they don't yet know the answer or when they might be wrong or where, they do, where they're uncertain or unclear, where they just don't know yet. And I think that's a hard thing to say in front of a client or in front of a creative team. And so we, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to create a safe space where uh, my team can tell me they don't know or they might not know how to do something and uh, uh, they can also tell me when I'm not there and I need to be. And so yeah. I think in that sense, uh, it's, it's manifested for me a lot as like putting the right people around me where I can make sure that they help me uh, serve as a feedback loop on the burnout front. Um, and also just recognizing that like, uh, I'm not helping anyone when I burn out. I'm not like, I'm not playing a, I'm not a martyr. I'm not a hero. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's actually doing more harm than good. And so sometimes uh, the best thing that you can do when you're burning out is by like, giving somebody else an opportunity to step up and take some something off your plate. Uh, maybe before they're ready, maybe they are ready and you're just like guarding it a bit too closely. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, sometimes me getting better at managing my burnout has meant that like people on my team are a lot more successful for a whole host of reasons. How do you, uh, do you ever notice that your team's burning out and then what do you oh, do? Oh God. Yeah. Because that's hard when there's deliverables. Yeah. Um, uh, if you don't have a solution, that's okay. Yeah. A lot of times I think, you know, Often people that want to be really good at their jobs are prone to burning out, right? Because they, they're in the, the mindset of extra credit, right? Maybe if I know a little bit more, maybe if I do a little bit more, maybe if mm -hmm. I work a little bit harder, the work will get better. Um, and the truth is sometimes uh, there's like some more systemic problems uh, that happen around burnout. Maybe we're not staffed the right way. Like maybe we're thinking about this pro project incorrectly. Maybe the client isn't respecting the scope that they've paid for. Like one of the things that I see often is that you know, a client might really only have the budget for like 50% of a person and they use them like a hundred percent of their week. Right. Because yeah. of like the way that they insist on interacting with our team. And I think, you know, there's a world in which we can have those conversations. Um, you know, maybe a teammate like, or somebody who works on my team, it's not appropriate for them to go to the client and tell them that they're using them inappropriately or right. against scope. But part of, you know, part of my job now is to say, okay, like we're getting a lot of these requests. It doesn't, we actually didn't scope the business for you to be able to like, you know, we didn't retain you for you to be an always on advisor to our clients. I love that they're using you that way, right? Yeah. Where you're their big red button and when they don't know the answer, they call you. Uh, but one of the things that we have to start to figure out is like, you know, if you hope to use us in that way, how do we make sure that like this employee is one compensated for that uh, and protected to be able to like say yes to the types of requests that they're getting? I think a lot of it, you know, uh, a lot of it comes down to somebody has put them in a place where they are having trouble managing their own burnout. Agencies are notorious for that, right? Totally. I mean, you think about like our pitch culture, like, you know, <laughs> we're billable nine to five and then we pitch with all the time we have around that. And so, you know, part of it is like, you know, we talked about like creating that safe space and like putting people around you that can manage that burnout. I think a lot of what um, a lot of the reasons why I'm at Analog Folk right now is like I want to be at a startup where we can ask ourselves if there's other ways of working because I think the agency model has proven to be pretty predatory on the um, on young talent that works for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one thing that I think you obviously understand after being at agencies for so long, maybe you <laughs> researched this on your way to agencies yeah. is the business model of agencies, oh, yes. which a lot of people, and I think that uh, there was a class I took in college that was like on managing a PR firm <laughs> and that made me so aware. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people go into agencies, not understanding the business model yeah, and not understanding why it's important to flag when you're burning more hours than you're scoped totally. for and that you're not, 
if anyone sees you as someone like who's complaining for the, like it's like that's not what you're doing. Yeah, you're letting your account manager know, hey, you should pitch for more money. Yeah, totally. Like you're giving yeah. the whole business the opportunity, and why it's so important to track your hours. Um, and I've worked with a lot of people who are like, well, I was only scoped for 20 hours, so that's all I'm billing for, but yeah. I'm working 40. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, so tell somebody. Yeah, totally. And if somebody has the wrong reaction to that, like, guess what? That probably that person probably shouldn't be on the agency or they messed up in scoping this project. Yeah, and, totally. And you're catching them red-handed. Um, so sort of uh, on a halfway the same note, but a little bit on a different note. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we've worked together on... A variety of different yeah, things. Yeah, you're awesome. And then, oh, that's nice. There you go. And then, you don't get to talk about yourself much, but no, you thank are. God. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I go back and I listen when I'm editing these and writing them, and I'm like, I'll skip through, and it'll just be my voice, and I'm like, <gasps> oh God, I spoke too much about that. No, episode. no, no, no. You have a lot to share. Thanks. You feel good sharing it. That's so nice. <laughs> um, so, with each client, especially when you're doing different verticals, yeah. um, there's a lot of different business models out there, yeah. and those keep changing with just the different ways that we can conduct business yeah. with all of the internet shopping options oh, gosh, and subscription yeah. models. Um, can you talk to me about just learning a new business model and yeah. just, yeah, just talk about business models, Oh, man. Megan. Uh, God. <laughs> uh God. Uh, you can, I mean, business models are interesting, right? I think we're in the era of like Accenture buying Droga, right? So like we're in a weird place right now. Explain and, to people. Oh yeah. What that means. Um, so there, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, management consulting firms that have been out there for a while and they work in very different ways than creative agencies. So like a McKinsey is one, mm-hmm. um, Accenture is another, Deloitte is another. They do a breed of business consulting that's a bit more um, traditional and uh, almost like corporate focused than like what we would say we're in the business of, which is like often like uh, productive creativity. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's been really interesting is that in the last handful of years, a lot of these management consultancies have been like gobbling up creative shops, uh, because they want to be able to say that we will solve the business problems and then execute them creatively. Mm-hmm. So we live in an era now where you have these like, you know, similar to the era of like these global communications companies, you now have these titanic global consulting firms with like creative shops in their wheelhouse. And so Droga had been, um, kind of a, one of the, no, it's a bit, it's a bit of a myth that they were an independent agency cause they had taken, um, they had taken other people's money before this year. Uh, but they were, um, acquired by Accenture. Who's like one of those massive, uh, corporate consulting firms this year. And now there's a really, there's a really interesting offering, uh, that's happening for shops like that, where they're trying to own, the entirety of the client services kind of industry and execute across all of those fronts. Um, But anyway, I think, you know, one of the things that's been really, really, uh, really, really interesting about the last era of kind of like um, both uh, consult business consulting, like, cause that's a little bit of what strategists do. You're, you have to understand the client's business model to be able to help them succeed. Um, But also just in business is that, Mm -hmm. Um, you're seeing a lot of like disruption in the way that uh, players are coming to market with different ways of making money, right? Um, there is a, 
there's a lateral entrant in almost every category that totally turns uh, the entire industry upside down. So if you think about like what Amazon has done to retail uh, mm-hmm. by completely challenging the retail's business model, they've put like a lot of the Sears and JC Penney's like just out of business. You talk about like uh, kind of like the long tail of retail falling down. It like you see these like big big retail companies that just like can't make their business models work anymore. And so you know some of what our job is these days is to like show people the competitor that they might not see yet. So um, I spend a lot of time in uh, the fitness category talking about YouTube. Like you don't see YouTube yet as your competitor. Which is crazy to me that they don't. Yeah, because it is. But there's a massive migration of attention from what we would see normally in like traditional gyms or Mm -hmm. – in the fitness space towards like a different breed of offering that's showing up in a completely virtual way. And you see, you know, even if you are in the business of fitness content, you're seeing people not want these like high production value, kind of like super staged, well-lit kind of fitness offerings. They want the authenticity and proximity of like a person on the other side of that camera who's also going to talk to you in the comments, right? There's something really interesting about like just the way we're seeing behavior shift in the marketplace and that being a signal of how um, different business models are going to succeed or fail. And so part of, you know, part of our job is to like, to bring those artifacts into institutions that maybe don't see them yet, right? Mm-hmm. Like your audience is, is moving, it's migrating, right? And like in that migration, they are going to start to value a different set of offering services, attributes, qualities, criteria, you name it, um, that like may affect the the, uh, the like, um, stickiness of your proposition, right? Like your proposition might be aging. And so I think part of, part of our job is to like bring some of those into rooms that maybe like haven't wanted to really like grapple with that yet or aren't ready to, but there's another really important side of our jobs, which is like, uh, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Uh, like just you, when you need to ask your client to teach you about their business and when they start talking, you need to shut the fuck up, like, and listen, like, because they are going to know more about the ins and outs of how they make money than you ever will reading a textbook or like studying a McKinsey model online or like taking a class. Right. And I think, you know, there are like, my goal has always been, especially, um, later in my career, like I want to get into the rooms with the finance people and I want to be quiet and listen to them talk to me. Right. Absolutely. And I think like you learn a lot in those rooms and even though like sometimes, you know, the, the CFO is the person who's like, they're ultimately going to kill your idea or they're going to challenge it, or they're going to like affect the budget you walk away with next year from that client. The CFO also knows what brings money into the bottom line. And I think unless you're going into those rooms with an extreme amount of humility for what those businesses know, uh, and an understanding also of like what you're seeing at the behavioral level from like a target audience or from like a customer base, like that is the only way I think we can hope to survive in like the modern age of doing business, right? Like yeah. there's a world in which like I think, you know, we've always talked about consultants as like uh, stealing your watch and then telling you the time, right? Uh, and I think like I think we are far beyond that era where we are now. Like there are very very serious threats to different industries, to different business models. The marketplace is incredibly dynamic, and it takes everyone at that table looking at problems together with an extreme amount of respect for other people's disciplines, knowledge bases, and humility for what the answer could be to like actually make it out alive. And it's exciting to be in a time when like 
collaboration on that level as possible, but it's also really scary. It's really scary to hold the reins of somebody else's business and say, all right, like, I'm not sure I know the answer, but I think together we might be able to find a few different directions that might be viable. Or even a safe uh, sort of testing zone. Oh, cool. Yeah. And my, so I recorded with my friend Genevieve yesterday, yeah. who she's um, a VP at Golan. Oh, cool. And she's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked a lot about how being there has uh, challenged her knowledge of business and oh, made yeah. her learn a lot about the business side. Yeah, totally. And just how, um, like, creating, especially when innovation in digital mm-hmm. um, can be especially when you're working with big clients. So her main client is Mountain Dew. Oh, wow. Okay. um, Which is so fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I talked to her about, like, how do you approach, like, hey, we need to innovate, but also we can't, like, without scaring people. Yeah, totally. And so she talked about just, you know, which is, um, I love is, like, the 80-20 split of, like, hey, we're doing 80% of our efforts are going to be here so that we meet your KPIs. Let's use the other 20% of our efforts to split Mm -hmm. and, like, do some testing, and then also here's our, our backup plan. Yeah, absolutely. Because my question to her is, like, as a VP, you have, you know, strategists who are bringing this to you. Yeah. How do you like to be presented with something that's new? Because my least favorite thing, and it's something that I've had to really learn how to craft the right sort of messaging yeah. and do the right thinking yeah. and be humble in, is, like, I am always one to go, like, well, that's nice that that's what we did, but, like, <laughs> did it work? Now? Yeah, yeah, and totally. Like, you know, anytime... I just think about the example of like when everybody was looking at Refinery29 mm-hmm. who, you know, found the brilliant whole loophole in Facebook to post an image and then put the copy with a link in there yeah. because photos were getting more traction yeah. at the time. And it's like, that's nice that you want to pivot to that model, but be ready for the algorithm to change because oh, yeah. that's what algorithms do is the yeah. moment you do anything that impacts it, whether that is a like or an upload or a hashtag. Yeah that changes the rate of change is wild right now yeah it's so wild yeah. and so like don't once something has been proven as a successful tactic that yeah. tactic is not your strategy yeah totally that tactic is something that like yeah it works that's yeah. fine but guess what that worked a month ago yeah if it worked long enough ago that there's a case study that exists yeah it's probably outdated in terms of execution yeah you know maybe sample a little bit of that but be ready to do something else and when I present those ideas and somebody goes like well where's the data to support that yeah my brain at like (laughs) yeah but it challenged me to go like oh yeah be ready to have data that then supports why doing something different is important your plan to pivot in case this does not work yeah especially because for a while I was on an esports client yeah which like that audience is very different yeah totally in the yeah. way that they engage yeah and like the platforms that they're on and what they want out of something and like be ready for sort of like especially you know a year two years ago yeah. the wild wild west yeah and I, in fact God, I have to show you this. It's like the, it's almost like the silliest thing ever to be like, you have to watch this documentary because there's a, a sort of documentary called mm-hmm. Dumb. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And it's about Big Brother magazine, which I was a huge Ooh. fan of. Yeah. Um, which is like sort of, it started as like a big middle finger up to like Thrasher and yeah. Trans World. Yeah, totally. And what I did not realize until watching this is that that was sort of the genesis. That was the genesis of where Jackass came out of. Oh, interesting. 
And prior to seeing this, I'd already had in my head, because I was very, like, the only reason I got into photography at mm-hmm. all, ever, was because I wanted to shoot action sports. Oh, cool. Yeah. It was all, it's, I took video programs, or video classes all through high school, because yeah. I was like, I just want to make skate videos. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I, I could have given a hoot about, like, a storyboard or any of that. Yeah, totally. I was like, I'm not trying to draw a storyline. Yeah. I just want to shoot skate videos. Yeah. And then got into photography, because I was like, oh, this is a different medium, like, whatever. Anyways, I'd already kind of in working in esports drawn the parallel of like how esports is developing with action mm. in the same way that action sports so developed. true yeah Where you, it was like very gritty mm-hmm. and then got really big and almost like obnoxious in the late 80s early 90s yeah. and then got sort of gritty again but then came back by way of x games which like <laughs> the money yeah. on those types of and like the amount of skate contests that yeah. it was like vans triple crown x yeah, games totally. like there was a whole circuit yeah that was insane yeah and seeing that thing that happen with esports and going to like I went to the League of Legends World Championships yeah. in China. Yeah. And seeing like the same arena that they used for the fucking Olympics. Wild, yeah. For esports. Yeah. How do you help people feel that, right? How yeah. do you help people feel that? And also like I hate to say that, like, how do you capitalize on this insane Wild West opportunity? Yeah, totally. Where there's so much money, it's not like the NBA where they already own everything. Yeah. Like each championship like yeah. so basically each like nba championship is owned by whoever makes the game yeah it's wild right so there's like infinite amounts yeah <laughs> that can happen yeah there's so much and they're all different categories like yeah. you can you can assume that most fans of you know football probably also follow somewhat of basketball yeah probably are aware of baseball especially if, yeah. if you're in a city like where i grew up in la where it's like you have the dodgers yeah yeah you used to have the rams now you have the rams again totally and then you also have the lakers and the clippers like there's just always room for yeah. them. yeah but in esports like i went i also um produced a video for red bull at the halo championships yeah in america which is very different than the League of Legends events totally. in America. Yeah, yeah, Because I did IPL4 way back in the day in yeah. Vegas. Very different audiences versus the audience in China. Mm-hmm. Like, I will say esports events have gotten cooler over yeah. the years in terms of, like, just it's more, like, normal sort of... I, I'm putting quotes around this. Like, yeah. normal people that attend. When I went to the IPL4 thing, like, years ago, it was, mm-hmm. like, a very lovely people. Very mouth-breathery, all-male <laughs> audience. You know, and I'm sorry for any of you who are, like, League of Legends players. That's just what it was, right? It was, like, much more of a stereotype. Then, to go to the League of Legends World Championships mm-hmm. in China, these kids, let me tell you, were way better dressed <laughs> and way cuter than, any, like, than, like, almost any ad campaign. Yeah. Like, everybody who showed up was, like, in, like, very kick-ass, either real or knockoff, like, Jordan and Gucci and, like, yeah, all this totally. stuff. Yeah, totally. Watching it kind of, like, mainstream, like, become front yes. of culture and all that stuff. It's Groups wild. of girls just, like, there with their girlfriends who are yeah. into League of Legends. Like, that so is crazy. not a demographic you see at esports events in yeah. the U.S. And not only that, but um, when it got down to the semifinals in... Because let me think, the finals were in Beijing... Semifinals were in Shanghai, and there were entire buildings lit up with the two Chinese teams that were facing off with the Korean teams. It was like RNG and another team. So, like, can you imagine in Times Square having yeah. like a block of that just be like in support? I know it's so wild. It's amazing. Yeah. And so that documentary done to me really made me go like, wow. Not only did this magazine start as like a subculture yeah. backlash to like the stringent approach that trans world was taking at the yeah, time. Yeah, totally. 
But then it spurred Jackass, which was this totally new format. And they talk about that, about how that was something that like, MT- like network execs were like this low grade, low budget show. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Like where's the high quality? I know. But it's what the world wanted. And I think about that in terms of like, that is also the equivalent of like people don't understand why people why people watch Twitch. Like yeah. what do you mean you just watch somebody else do that? Yeah. But that's what makes you so good, right? Like you all like I think one of the things that's really interesting about like you as a strategist and like uh, other strategists. I know. No, no, no. But I think that's like I mean, your your ability to have your feelers out and kind of like see these patterns emerge in culture mm. and like be able to connect the dots when you see those different things and also just like your um, cultural curiosity to like end up in those little corners of the world. Which right? are my favorite corners. Yeah, like I'm and like, that's I like, only care about the corners yeah. of the world. Everybody else can have the bulk of it. Yeah, but that's like that's your superpower, right? And I think one of the things I think about a lot is like you know sometimes because those are our superpowers we feel those shifts in culture we feel that shift in momentum we feel that change Mm -hmm. in the marketplace like we see it we can see it in the numbers but we also like we can feel it based on the patterns of the experiences we have and I think you know most I think the average tenure of a CMO right now is like 46 months like short yeah super short like, we're going to use you up and then you're outdated. Good I day. know, right? And I think... Go start your own agency. It's like kind of... So like <laughs> you walk into these rooms and you you like have... If you have a bit of empathy for like how our clients have to make decisions these days, you understand that they're like... They have a lot of like... They consider risk. Like risk mitigation is a big part of the way that they operate, yeah. right? And so, you know, there's... I think there's like a few... There's a few parts of that game that you have to play. Like one is how do you create a space with your clients where you are shifting where you're recognizing risk, but you are also creating spaces where you are talking about opportunity. Like even just bringing the frame of opportunity into rooms really changes the way that we make decisions, right? I think Mm -hmm. I love the idea of like, there's even like a percentage of your budget that's allocated to just like opportunity chasing and you recognize that like 70% of it has to be dedicated towards like evidence-based things that have like worked in the past. Yeah. But for that, you know, for that remaining, like for those moments where you're chasing opportunities or you're chasing trends, like one of the things that I think is the harder part of the craft is to like, how do you help somebody feel the patterns and the experiences that you've put together in your own experiences mm-hmm. in life, right? Because like so hard. Right. Like, because it's not about like telling them about esports. It's about like helping them feel what you felt when you stood in those stadiums and recognize like the force of like what is turning in culture, right? Mm-hmm. And the momentum that it has and the energy that's there and have the surprise moments that you've had where like your own mind was changed. And I think there's a few, you know, it's early in our careers, it's really easy to be frustrated by that. Like, I can't tell you how many meetings I've walked out of where I'm like, why can't you see what I see? Right. And then, you know, like five years later, you're like, Oh, that's my job. My job is to help them see what I've seen, help them feel what I felt. Right. Like responsibility is on us as the ones communicating. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, to understand, like to see every kind of room you're in where you're like, where you're walking through those things as like a mini experiment in your own life to be like, did they feel it this time? Like, did they felt what I felt? Like, and I think more and more, like, you know, I'm starting to like kind of like challenge the assumption that that needs to happen in a corporate boardroom with a like, you know, a keynote, right? Like, mm-hmm. the world of decks kind of like is inherently limiting in what you're allowing other people to feel. And yes. so, like, asking yourself, okay, like, 
do we just maybe need to go to one of these events together? Is that a better use of our time? Like, yeah. is it maybe about getting out of the office or is it about bringing these people into the office? Or is it about like, you know, how do you start to like reproduce some of the like learning and emotion that you've had as you went through that journey and like recognizing, respecting the like power of that trend movement subculture, like opportunity you yeah. name it. And like, how do you give other people a privilege of like experiencing those same things too? Because I think, you know, sometimes I look at that stuff as like, it's a gift to be able to connect dots and it's like, a, you know, it's a gift and it's a privilege and it's also incredible. Like I feel incredibly lucky that I get to like experience that in my own life and like work with other people and like live vicariously through the dots that they're able to connect. Right. Those totally. like those moments of like insightful discovery, like feel so awesome. Like yeah. they just, you're like, Oh my God, like I see it, I see it happening. Mm-hmm. And so like being able, you know, finding curating your craft and like honing your craft to be able to help other people feel those things too. is like a really, a really important responsibility, but also like a really fun part of our jobs. And you really can start to recognize that like, Oh, that's in fact the job that's to be done. Not like putting together 50 slides on a target audience. Right. Yeah. Now that I'm not bound to an agency. Yeah. I have started with like my clients. Yeah. Um, I don't even tell them really, hey, I'm not putting together a deck. I yeah. literally just don't address it and don't yeah. put together a deck. Yeah. And uh, typically what they get instead is either, well, typically what they get instead is a Word doc Yeah. that I tell them on the upfront, like, look, I have purposely made this Word doc totally. easy to search. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have a question, yeah, you do not need to then, because if I give you a deck, mm-hmm. you just have the, like this flashy deck, but like, is, you know, if I give it, it needs to be then, like, a deck that has all the information. Yeah, is it Guess useful beyond the meeting? Yeah. Right, like, a yeah. deck with all the information. Yeah, totally. It's a nightmare. And then yeah. I also, and I, I had somebody recently go, like, oh, well, can you make a deck? And I was like, look, you know, I bill X amount an hour. That deck will probably take me six to eight hours to put together. Yeah, totally. Because I need to find visuals. Yeah. I'm going to lament about the correct font choice. Yeah. I'm going to move things around. It's like, is that really what you want? Yeah. Right. And I was like, so if you want to pay like mm-hmm. a nearly $1,000 for a deck, <laughs> yeah, totally. by all means. Yeah, totally. And to be quite frank with you, I would probably, I have now realized that like there are certain things that I don't need, I don't need to be good at everything. I yeah. used to think, oh, I really need to be good at everything. Oh, Yeah. And decks are things that I have outsourced yeah. and been like, look, here's all right? the information. You're really good at synthesizing that. Yeah, totally. I will split this money with you to just yeah. not go through. Because it will tap me out so much totally. that I'm useless for the next two days. Yeah, definitely. And then I'm just going over, like, what could I have done differently and all this stuff versus, like, there's some people that are amazing at decks. Yeah. And I'm not one of them. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool to have the moments in your own life where you're like you know what, like, I might not be the best at that, and that's okay, but, like, uh, and then I, but I get to really appreciate people that are, like, amazing at that thing, right? Like, and give that person business, Yeah, and that's been my favorite thing, in fact, about, um, about subcultures, Yeah, especially now that, like, using influencers is so prevalent and expected, in fact, is to be able to go, like, because, you know, subcultures are such because they're not mainstream, which Mm -hmm. means that they're marginalized, Yeah, and to be able to get people who have not been, like, properly recognized for whatever badass thing that they have in their yeah, skill totally. set. To get those people paid yeah. and recognized and yeah. to be able to give them a platform. Yeah, because they're like, actually the best people to tell yes. those stories, yeah, right? Like, yeah, I should not be. You totally. know, like, I should not be there covering, yeah. you know, worlds in Beijing. Because yeah. nobody, like, those people who we expect to watch don't care. Totally. So instead, let me have, you know, Scara come do it. Or, yeah, like, let, for cool. the Halo stuff. Like, I love that. You know, being the producer off camera, questioning, yeah. talking to this team, 
let those guys talk. I don't mm-hmm. need to be the one there presenting Halo and like learning about it, you know. And yeah. like I know my knowledge of both of those things is limited. And so getting people, I think that's my favorite thing. Yeah. Is to be able to get those people where like if there's a really good designer and that's like speaks to the, you know, strategy that we put together, like getting yeah. those people paid. I don't need to be the one yeah. doing it. And all. it makes you better at your job. Like that becomes like the true value of your job is not just like, you know, when you can everything. Yeah, I know, right? That's such a How do I, I take that into our personal I life? wish <laughs> I wish I could teach every like I think that's like the thing I would tell most women coming out of college, Agreed. which is like, you know, it's really it's really good for you to get experience doing a lot of things, but there will be a moment in your career where you're able to recognize a more nuanced like kind of territory of your value and like and that you now have the the gift, the privilege, the like permission to be able to like bring other people in to do things around you and like celebrate their wins like they're your own you know like uh I think it's really really fun to be able to like you know it's I wish I could teach like every middle school girl this which is like it's really fulfilling to like watch and cheer for other people and like help them succeed yeah like when you get to celebrate other people's successes with them like and it's okay to cheer for yourself totally because that I was always supporting other people's work and yeah. it wasn't until my friend Cheyenne said something to me where he was like because he's an artist and he's a pretty yeah. successful artist I don't know if you his uh, handle is Indian Giver oh cool Instagram. yeah 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 um and he said to me like look like we have a finite amount of energy mm-hmm. and when I look back on my life because he's older than I am he's like probably 12 years older than yeah I and he was like, when I look back on my life, it's like a flip book, like a time lapse. Yeah. And like all of the people and places, basically all the nouns change. Yeah. But the thing that matters is how I used my energy. Yeah, totally. And when I realized like, oh, I'm putting all of this energy building other people's businesses. And yeah. I have all these ideas of my own, but why don't I feel confident enough in any of those? Yeah. And I've supported, like, I love everyone I've worked with. I've supported some ideas that were just not... I knew they weren't going to work, but I was just excited to help or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why am I not... Because even with this podcast, Mm -hmm. I'd been like, well, who can I do it with? Yeah. And I was like, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it. Yeah. Like, what are you lamenting over, like, all these things for, like, need all the structure in place? Like, you can figure that stuff out later. Yeah. Like, dumber people have started things. (laughs) You'll be okay. And whatever. If no one listens, guess what? No one heard you mess up. Yeah, totally. Then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So what is some of your recommended reading? Oh, man. Recommended reading. Um, Because you recommended Meta Luxury to me once, and it was a joy. Oh, God, Meta Luxury. That was a a blast. A moment in time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Man, I'm like, the stuff I'm reading right now is actually like, uh, a little bit weird and different. Um, uh, I'm like spending a really long time reading Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. And okay. it sounds like really, <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, I, I'm spending more time reading fiction because I'm spending more time taking apart what makes us really um, connect with a character and like the mm-hmm. role that characters play in stories. And like, um, I, I think right now it's actually like it's a nice come full circle to the beginning, but like, one of the things that I kind of am trying to do in all the businesses I work on is develop a protagonist to design for and make that protagonist feel as like real and multifaceted and um, to contain as many dimensions as maybe the protagonist we like read books about or like watch movies about and stuff like that. And so um, we do a lot of work for Maybelline and 
the Maybelline woman has become this like uh, this kind of like ca character that I get to build lore for. Like I know it sounds sort of like such different words to use in advertising, but um, more and more I feel like I like understand this woman. Um, uh, and I get to like, when I see her on the subway, I'm like, oh my God, that's her. Like, and I have these like weird, like <laughs> have these weird moments in my life where like I meet the character that I've been like building for the creative team I work on and for the brand I work on and the business I work on. And so um, Bonfire of the Vanities, aside from being like just an amazing story about like uh, kind of like New York in the 80s and, and kind of like all the ways in which consumerism has like led us astray uh there's just like a lot of there's a lot of, of my good favorite things to explore oh yeah it's just like i'm a big fan yeah it's a weird it's a weird weird relationship to have when you feel that way and also work in advertising mm -hmm. anyway um <laughs> but yeah spending a lot of time thinking about character development and work like that i think uh i've been taking i've been taking a break from books and spending a lot of time reading print mm -hmm. um uh, i think there's a print being print magazines i think there's like one of the coolest ways to like kind of open your mind to like different creative spaces and subcultures and ideas is to like get back in the zines and like find weird like parts of the world who are like making different publications that are like exploring tiny little like not even corners of culture like closets of culture right yeah. like just these little like tiny spaces and I think for me that's been um kind of like intentionally pivoting away from maybe some of like the heavier business reading I've done for the past decade and really starting to look at um, how different voices are expressing themselves. It's been mm -hmm. like really, really fun for me. Um, I think uh, I've also been reading a lot of um, cultural criticism from like a writer named Mark Grafe, mm -hmm. uh, who I, he wrote a book called Against Everything, which I've probably read three times now. Um, each kind of essay in that book systematically takes apart something that we've accepted as normal in culture and there's something really powerful about um, an author that can challenge like the everyday fabric of life and I think he um, you know working in some of the industries that we work in the categories that we have exposure to like when he systematically takes apart beauty and exercise and uh, relationships and the internet and uh, the difference between this. like, you know, punk rock and hip hop. And like, I think there's, there's a really, um, there's a lot of depth there and it helps you really understand sometimes um, a lot of the things you take for granted in life and like bring a different critical eye to like a lot of that stuff. Um, so yeah, there's a, a smattering of things. I think in the strategy world, I will, um, I'm really proud of Mark Pollard and everything Mark Pollard's been publishing. Um, I think he's become in a lot of ways, uh, the voice of like, a uh, community and industry that like has really needed some help finding themselves. I think he's really, you know, he, and I've been to a handful of his workshops. I've talked to him in person a handful of times. Um, I, have pretty much read everything he's published, but, uh, he's, I would say like rewriting the book on what it means to be a strategist and what it means to work in this industry in this moment in time. And also I think the things that make people like you and I like good at our jobs, uh, also tend to, um, bring some pretty like toxic side effects with them. And just like, uh, if you spend your life in your head, sometimes, uh, that can be a lonely place. And like, how do you navigate that stuff? And from, everything Mark has written from helping, you know, people like us get better at our craft to having a better experience practicing our jobs as human beings. I, um, I just like, I'm just really proud that he's doing that. And I feel like I will forever be his cheerleader. I, like in a weird way, I feel like because he's done that, I can exhale because like, I don't need to do that. Like that is a Absolutely. book. Yeah. Like I, that is a, 
his work is something that I feel better knowing uh, is in the world, especially with like a whole new generation of young women, like women stepping into these roles. Totally. I love that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of his. Wolf, wolf, super girl, like fangirl <laughs> moment there. I stand Mark Pollard pretty hard. That's awesome. I know. Um, what, so the final question I ask yeah. every guest oh, wow. is, um, what is something that you would like to hear the behind the scenes of for like a future oh. episode? Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> such a good question. Um, oh man, I'm like running through a list of like a lot of different things in my head right now. Um, do you want to hear samples of other ones? Would that be helpful? Yeah. So, well, and one, I actually reached out to somebody to do today and I yeah. got the most incredible response for scheduling I've ever had happened. So yeah. my friend Jessica, who's a stand-up comedian, yeah. she was on talking about being a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And, you know, just everything about that. And when I asked her this question, we got into funeral home directors. Oh, yeah. And people who are, the, like, deciders about um, if someone is approved for assisted suicide or not. Wow. And I reached out to a funeral home director, and she agreed. That's amazing. And the response I got is the best scheduling response I've ever gotten, which is... I just got a big funeral, so let me see what my schedule will be like. And I read it out loud and just burst. And I mean, as you know, I have a very dark sense of humor. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, <laughs> okay. That is wild. There's like a, a casual response I never thought I'd yeah. get. Um, so, and then I've also had like network, like media network executive as a yeah. request. Um, air traffic controller. Yeah. What was another oh, recent so one? Cool. I've gotten a few that I love I was all like, of those. I love all of the, you know, I feel like I spend so much time on like the, the side of the business that's like about talking to people and like uh, the the system side of businesses are always really interesting to me. Yes. So like supply chain operations and like all of those yeah. worlds are like really manufacturing is really interesting to me. I think I would, you know, one of the things that I, um, I think about often, but don't have a lot of like. I don't have a lot of like, whether it's like skills or permission to like help with, I guess, um, which is always a lame excuse. So maybe I just need to lean into it is I think people on the front lines of sustainability that are really like, um, especially in the sciences right now that mm -hmm. are like in a kind of dark and tragic way, like watching the earth die. Yeah. Um, I like getting to hear the stories that those people have and the experiences that they go through and the way that they see and feel that I think is going to be, I think that's really important. Totally. We talk about, we tend to talk about, um, the earth as this like collective room we all sit in and we often don't get to hear, uh, as much about individuals, pe individual people's relationship with like the land that they live in or live through or care for or tend to. And I think whether it's, um, whether it's uh, people in like sustainable farming or sustainable yeah. agriculture or people that are like uh, working for NGOs, like uh, taking plastic out of the ocean or like, uh, like even, even what it's like these days to work for the EPA. Like mm -hmm. I just, one of the things I'm really interested in is like how, how is the current kind of like mindset and uh, motivations of mankind? Like, how are we really, how is that really like manifesting in um, damage to the earth? And what does that feel like for you? Because I think a lot in a lot of ways, um, I know that those stories are really powerful in changing behavior, but also I think it's really important that those people's experiences are like heard by a world that tends to not think about the earth in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I yeah. love that. 
Yeah. I can't wait to listen to that one. <laughs> I can't wait to record it. Maybe I'll like go find that interview for you so I can sit in and listen to it. But yeah, yeah. I think it sounds really... I should invite you as like a co-host and we can both question. Yeah. Because oh you ask such it. good questions oh. that I would love to have you Oh on. my gosh. That's really Just nice to me to say. some poor EPA yeah. employee. Oh my gosh. Better yet, ex-employee who can yeah. talk about it. That's, yeah. Sometimes there are people that I'm like, well, let me know when you leave that job so we can talk about it. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm in. Awesome. Whenever you're ready. Thank you so much, Megan. This was <laughs> oh, so great. thank you. I feel so privileged to be like invited onto your podcast. Oh my god! Of uh, and like, I'm so proud of you for everything you're doing, and I can't wait to see you continue to like flourish and grow in all the ah! new directions you'll take on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. I say another because I am hopeful that this is not your first episode. If it is, uh, there's a few episodes that I highly recommend to new listeners to check out. Um, well. God, I really like all of them. Um, I definitely am, am somebody who will hold back episodes if I don't think that they were good enough or re-record. Um, but I will say that some of my favorites, especially in terms of just like different ways to think about life, to manage information, um, Chelsea Von Chaz of Happy Period, on her episode, she shares some really great tips that her therapist taught her about like to-do list and to-be list and how those work in her life and just how she saw a problem in the world and went and jumped and changed her life to solve it, which is just really admirable. So I highly recommend that episode. I also recommend Peter Neff's episode. He's a glaciologist and he studies um, climate science. And that episode is just really, it's great. I love it. And I'm so grateful for his time on it. He does some really interesting work. Listen to that. Um, it will teach you quite a bit about just you know, how science happens, the gap between public knowledge and research. And then if you're looking, if you're like more of an entrepreneurial track, I would recommend listening to Karen Oquanquo's episode. She is the co-founder of Tonal, Walter Powell's episode. He and I also dig into like some of the conversations that Megan and I were having about killing your ego and um, just making a, a impact bigger than yourself in the world. Damola Gundepe's episode is really great. Um, I'm trying to think what other founders have I had on. I've had on, I think, quite a few founders. Um, and then if you're like in music or entertainment, Jessica Michelle Singleton is a stand-up comedian. Her episode is great. Matt FX is a music supervisor. He shares a lot of details around just like the tactical part of music supervision and his approach to his job. He was the music supervisor on Broad City for the duration of that series. Drew DeCaro is a professional guitarist and uh, executive producer. He was the producer on Vic Mensa's album. Listen to that. Jayhawk's a producer. Listen to that episode. They're just, I have a, a lot of people in similar roles and functions sharing their journey because it's really important to me that we share just what works for different people because we are all different and that's beautiful. And uh, as you'll hear in a future episode with a lovely woman named Erica Massaquoi. Oh man, I always mess up her name. Massaquoi, I think. Anyways, she's just amazing. And I love that um, when she talks about when she's negotiating with people that um, instead of saying like, here's why you should hire me or accepting no as an answer when someone says, I think you're overqualified, um, she'll say, actually, I'm uniquely, uniquely qualified for this position, which is beautiful. So thank you for listening. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Bitherum. There's a link to his SoundCloud in the description of this episode. Please do subscribe, rate, review, and have a beautiful day.